Hello, and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter, Gabby Barco, and I'm here with editor-in-chief, Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Hello, Kale. Hello, Gabby. <laughs> that was, that was a flat hello, but I'll take it. Um, hello, Gabby. Well, <laughs> this week, we are going to be talking about, um, I mean, I feel like we've been talking about MNA a lot lately, but hey, times are tough. I so that's, UPS, that's what we're that's what we're in right now. MNA. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So first up uh, is UPS acquiring happy returns from PayPal. Then Unilever selling off Dollar Shave Club. That one's going to be an interesting one to get into. And finally, we asked the question, is Sears having a revival? Stay tuned. Uh, so first up, first up is uh, UPS. So yeah, this one, I guess it was somewhat of a surprise, but we have seen the reverse logistics uh, category kind of, uh, I don't know, lose steam in the last year. So yeah, it's uh, Happy Returns, for those who don't know, is a reverse, log- I mean, it's essentially a returns vendor that a lot of uh, big retailers have been using over the last few years. And it was acquired by PayPal for an undisclosed sum in 2021. This was at the height of uh, the logistics boom. Um, but now uh, UPS has has bought it. And I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to say that UPS seems like a more uh, obvious choice to be a parent company. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think this is indicative of of the times we're in, especially you know, for for these back end services, there were there was so much interest and there was so much buying and investing, you know, starting in 2020, going through 2021, 2022 for these types of service because they were in such high demand during the pandemic. Um, you know, e-commerce, e-commerce sales skyrocketed. People wanted to return their items, have all parts of the e-commerce shopping process be as easy as possible, as streamlined as possible. Um, but you know, the dirty truth about all of this is that this costs money and it requires manpower and it, you know, it just is such a physical investment and requires such category and operational knowledge um, that, yeah, I guess this is not surprising. You know, PayPal is a big company. And so clearly, maybe they they looked at their, you know, all of their various businesses, how they're performing and were like, we we can't keep doing this. And as you said, I, I agree, like, it's, it's a smart decision for a company like UPS to be doing this because this is very much its bread and butter and it's trying to continue it, you know, competing with FedEx, with USPS, with, you know, all those others. And so, um, but I think that there's a backdrop behind this, which is that there is big consolidation and offloading and a realization that specifically logistics companies aren't going to be huge profit centers or at least not right now. And so, you know, like, look at, Shopify unloading Flexport earlier this summer. I think that's a very similar uh, situation to this where there was a parent company who was mostly focused on one thing and that thing was not really involved with, you know, the the physical transfer of goods. It was m- much more of a digital company and it bought these companies with the understanding that they would... Um, you know, they would help them control more aspects of the process, have a little bit more control, seem a little bit more unified. But then they were like, oh, my God, this costs so much money. We are losing so much money and the economy is not good right now. We need to get rid of these businesses. And so that's what I think this is indicative of. But yeah. 
Yeah, because uh, these, you know, I think unlike software or maybe other uh, SaaS providers, logistics is a big undertaking. So uh, yeah, when times were good, everybody was calling them these future investments, right? Like long-term investments where they wanted to own their uh, returns, which we talk a lot about. I think it's one of the biggest problems for retailers right now. But uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like the acquisitions are are working out. So uh, similarly, a firm bought Returnly, which um, is also another returns platform in 2021, and it essentially just shut it down for $300 million, and it shut it down this past May. So it seems like, unfortunately, a bit of a trend. It just happened to be another, uh, you know, finance <laughs> company that that was trying to get into this, which brings us to this, you know, the concept of this super app, right? Where I think like Shopify is the big prominent name in the space and they they do it pretty well for the most part, but even they're not immune to uh, to not being able to, I guess, like focus enough attention on multiple sectors, including, you know, things like uh, logistics. Yeah. God, Gabby, I could talk to you for days about super apps, but like okay. <laughs> the dream, the dream of digital, you know, of, of apps, they've been this way for, you could even say a decade where over the years, there's a company that says, we're going to have every part of this service in our specific app and you'll be able to do it. You know, Facebook is actually a really good example with Instagram when it tried to make itself a shopping app and do all these different things. And, but often over the years, this has not worked. PayPal was actually the one that uh, people were were looking at just because it was such a big company. It had such a stronghold on the payments, uh, the payments ecosystem that maybe it could do it. And so, you know, there PayPal does have an app that is more or less unified. It tries what what PayPal says its super app is is that you can you know you can do payments, you can pay bills, you can buy crypto, you can shop, and then also now probably not anymore. You could handle returns with PayPal, but you know others actually a firm's a great example where a firm has tried to have this quote unquote super app that just brought it all into one place, but. Every time a company has done this, it has not gone as perfectly as the company expected. And there have been changes, there have been tweaks, they've realized that they're a little bit too far out of their realm and that they don't know enough about whatever that segment is. I don't know, even even X, formerly Twitter, like isn't that exactly what Elon Musk is trying to do right now is make it a quote unquote super app. But um but I think that with PayPal offloading happy returns, when it was purchased in 2021, this was this was the glowing example of, you know, we're going to bring all of these aspects of, you know, of digital life into our specific ecosystem. And clearly that did not pay dividends for them, for PayPal. Yeah. And so I do wonder what this means for, um, I mean, I think, you know, we still have to see, but it sounds like maybe UPS might uh, bake uh, happy returns into its existing uh, system, or uh, I don't know, maybe just continue to operate it. Uh, we don't have a lot of information, but what are your thoughts on like a carrier, I guess, uh, you know, handle or just being, a, yeah, acquiring companies like these compared to sort of like 
companies that are more on the e-commerce side and yeah, uh, yeah software side. And yeah, I'm actually just going to make a quick correction from the thing I said earlier. I said a firm is okay. trying to be a, a super app. It's actually Klarna, and I mix those two up. There's the two companies up because BNPL is one giant bubble of Yes. <laughs> Klarna was the one that wanted to be a super app, but I don't, I can't think of anything they've offloaded recently. But either way, um, to your question, I think, A, it makes a lot of sense for UPS or a carrier to do this. Um, for happy returns, most of its quote-unquote return nodes, or I, I think that's what they call them, whatever, places where you, where if you bought something online and you want to easily return it, um, usually it would be a retail store or you know some other physical partner that a person could go in, give their stuff, and then happy returns would handle the rest. Um, and it, a lot of it focused on sort of major, uh, I guess, chain retailers. I think in 2020, maybe it's 2022 or 2021, or um, uh, it partnered like with Ulta, for example. And the idea was Ulta has a lot of stores. People go to Ulta a lot. So if you bought something online from some other brand, you could go to your Ulta store and then Happy Returns would, would return it. Um, and whenever you saw a new press release from Happy Returns, it would talk about the, the thousands of locations that you know it had in the US. Um, and they they all usually pointed back to a new partnership with a store or a new partnership with some public-facing physical place. But with UPS, A, there are UPS stores for one thing, but also like UPS has been doing this type of thing for a long time. I've had my my packages picked up from me um from UPS before for a fee, of course, but this is something that it knows how to do. It already has it in place. And you know, maybe I'm it, in the press release. It already said that the UPS stores are going to be added to the Happy Returns thing. Um, I'm trying to find the number right now. I think it says that uh, it, Happy Returns used to have over around 5,000 locations you could participate in. Soon, according to UPS and Happy Returns, it'll be over 12,000. That's a that's a big increase. But I also imagine for a company that already does, um, you know, deliveries, you know, a carrier service probably they'll try to integrate this into that aspect of it as well, which would would make sense for a service like Happy Returns. Um, so, you know, th th it just seems like there's a, there are a lot more parts of the business that align, and these are a lot of parts that UPS already knows about and can probably invest in more easily than, than a company like PayPal. I think the implication uh, that, you know, they know about it, I think when we say that, it's that, you know, they have experience and they have the infrastructure. I think that's the big one, Exactly, right? yeah. We're talking about trucking and moving things across the country. So. Yeah, and as much as they want that to be digitized, it, it still <laughs> requires literal people, despite all the robotics companies you read about, and it still re requires trucks, and it still requires fulfillment. So, you know, it requires all of these mm -hmm. things that, you know, a digital company like PayPal just likely did not have in place when when it first acquired uh, a company like Happy Returns. Right, yeah. Unless we somehow get to a point where we could uh, turn packages into the metaverse, this is this is will continue to be a heavily physical uh, business. Up next, we are going to be moving into uh, Dollar Shave Club. This is a big story this week out of the DTC world. Unilever sold the majority stake uh, of Dollar Shave Club to a private equity firm called Nexus Capital Management. Uh, this, it, it is a big deal because the brand was acquired in 2016 for a billion in a billion dollar deal. This was only five years after it launched. 
you to see. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds like it wasn't a good fit and Dollar Shave Club just was not able to grow under the multinational conglomerate as well as, well as they hoped. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably giving some some people in the industry pause just because this was always the example of the most, uh, I guess, the most parsimonious exit a, a brand like Dollar Shave Club could have, where you grow your DTC, and then I don't know if you look at like, like all the debacle that happened with Harry's, it's become difficult for a company that reaches a certain scale and that d- wants to keep growing, you either go public or you get bought by a major conglomerate. But the fact that Dollar Shave Club was unable to perform under this you know, major CPG giant shows that this pathway to growth might not be best for, for these types of brands, at least in this case, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, because it was built on a direct-to-consumer model and didn't move uh, at least according to reports, it didn't really go into retail until much later. I believe it was actually even after Perry's got into Target, which was kind of like the big turning point for this yeah. category. Uh, so, and then, it, of course, being under Unilever, you would think that would have accelerated, but it seems like maybe the focus was on growing, continue to grow e-commerce. But as we know, there there are a lot of challenges started, uh, I mean, since 2016, the DTC model uh, has changed a lot to, uh, you know, and it, that's an understatement. But yeah. yeah, it's it's just a lot more expensive to to do business online. And so I think maybe just didn't ex- didn't perform as well as they were, they thought it would. Yeah. And I think that especially for Unilever, it's, it, it, you know, it, overall, I think reported general sales growth, but like, there have been things that are underperforming, and it sounds like its beauty section specifically has been underperforming. For example, from this story from WWD, which reported the acquisition as well as Unilever's overall earnings, it said that beauty and well-being, the beauty and well-being division accounted for 20% of its turnover, but that turnover was down 4.9% on a reported basis. So that shows that that segment of the business is overall not doing as well as it was a year ago. And I'm sure that there are you know, macroeconomic things at play. But, you know, when you when you have a company that you bought for a billion dollars, you want that to be one of your your shining stars, one of the leaders in the space. And I guess that has not been the what's going on. Yeah. And uh, turnover, for those who don't know, is essentially revenue or sales in UK terms, right? Europe? I, th- I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I remember it took me a few, few times to remember that. Um, so, yeah, I think with that said, uh, it is interesting. So, you know, they will maintain a 35% stake, but this uh, this new um, private equity firm has, sounds like they have plans to kind of pick things back up with Dollar Shave Club. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts? I mean, you know, this seems to be a very popular trend, um, you know, in the DTC world. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I mean, I think that, Offloading underperforming assets is definitely a trend in the business world as a whole. Um, I, I I mean, like we don't know exactly what uh, what they're going to do with it, what Nexus will do. They of course say they have big plans, but I imagine I don't know. Th- this seems like if you if you're at Dollar Shave Club, this probably you know, is isn't the best news, just because you know your your best shot at growing is when you live underneath one of these companies where all they do is they think about 
the, the category and selling these types of goods. And so if that didn't work and you're being sold to a firm, um, I, it just it, it just shows that times are really tight right now. And it, it's probably going to be, there's probably going to be some big changes under when, when you have a, a PE firm running you, is, is my guess. But what do I know? So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like also Unilever is just going to be focusing on its uh, core brands, its 30 power brands, as it calls uh, them in its portfolio. And, you know, they're they're pretty big. You've got your Doves. You've got, um, yeah, a lot of the big drugstore brands. So we'll see what happens with Dollar Shave Club. I'm, I'm curious to see whether they lean further into e-com or... Um, or, you know, go into retail. I, one other thing I wanted to mention is that there was some other uh, reported, quote unquote, mistakes that the company made in the last couple of years, which was to kind of, you know, product category expansion, like adding fragrance, um, you know, like $50 colognes, which I think probably maybe didn't work out well, uh, just because it's a very different um, proposition than what, the, I mean, the dollar is in the name. So, you know, maybe it's a little hard to sell uh, luxury. But um, yeah, it sounds like maybe it's like kind of back to the drawing board. Yeah, I just, I guess with that, I think there were probably, and we could talk for a lot um, about, you know, the strategic mistakes that either Dollar Shave Club made, but or a lot of these, you know, darlings from 2015, 2016 area that have tried to grow and keep their essence, but also be a national brand. And I think the fact that Dollar Shave Club was unable to reach the ubiquity that a Dove is, um, I think is telling just about if a lot of these brands, given how how they've grown, how they see themselves, a lot of their choices as business models over the years, that they might just hit a wall. You know, what, what a Unilever wants is it wants all of the brands that it spies to be ubiquitous, to be available in every drugstore. It also wants them to have brand equity and to be considered nice. But like the DTC proposition was that it has beloved customers, maybe not as many as, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions, but people who will constantly be going back and they have a direct line to them. But what Unilever wants is just a company that sells and people think is synonymous with whatever that category is. And so maybe there's just sort of a friction there that that we're now seeing um, that, you know, we might be, be seeing more of down the line. So going in a little bit of a different direction, um, you know, Sears, uh, don't call it a comeback, et cetera, et cetera. Don't call uh, it a comeback. <laughs> we won't, but uh, yeah, it sounds like they, um, you know, Sears is always this like retailer that's on the back burner. Like we just, I feel like we never really know what's going on with it just because it's, there's now only about 11 stores, which is a huge, huge difference than maybe when we were growing up and going to Sears. There's hundreds of them um, across the country and uh, they kept closing. But this week, it sounds like uh, one store in Burbank reopened after it seemed like it was, you know, closed for good uh, at the end of last year. And now it's reopened. There's some theories about why that is. But uh, Sears still seems to want to have some kind of presence, which I find really interesting. Yeah. I mean, Sears is the example of the zombie retailer, which is the retailer that everyone thinks is dead, is if you compare it to its earlier glory, like 
pretty dead. But also, like, every once in a while, there is something there that happens that you're like, oh, it's it's still around. Like, for instance, I didn't, you know, maybe this is a bad thing to admit, um, being a co-host of a, of a retail podcast, but I didn't realize that it even had that many, you know, it doesn't have that many, but that even had any locations still open. And so when you hear of one opening, you're like, oh, I didn't realize that was still around. But like, it's also, it's one of those stories and it's an old story specifically with the retail, which is a company that was unable to update its business model, filed for bankruptcy, was bought and sold in many different iterations, has been broken up into different, you know, different slices and dices of the company. Um, And so right now they're, you know, it, it's owned by a company named Transform. Is it Transform Co.? I need to, yeah, I believe so. Um, which was one of its ex-CEOs, and it's both Sears and Kmart, another company you didn't realize was technically still around. But for the most part, the headlines, if you know, if you do any Google search about Sears, it's that it's closing stores. Every year it's like, these stores are closing, these stores are closing. Um, but the company, I guess, does still have some of them open um, and keep saying that, there's, you know, there's a more streamlined strategy on the horizon. I don't know if this opening is that streamlined strategy, but it is it is noteworthy to see that, that this did happen. Yeah, the idea is that it's about having a smaller footprint, bigger stores, but fewer locations, as opposed to, I think we could say the inverse of that is what Target does in big cities, which is have these small micro stores, a lot of them very close to each other. And so that's interesting. Yeah, because then I think that's what, that's what's making this confusion, I think maybe is that a lot maybe like most of the population doesn't realize it because they don't live close to one of the 11 stores. Um but the reopening, I, I think maybe we I don't know if we can call it that even. It sounds like it's not it's not voting well. I mean, there's been <laughs> interesting reports about just looking sad and having empty shelves and stained carpets, which I thought was an interesting detail that some customer reported. So yeah, I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that it it's, it sounds like not a lot, a great deal of thought went into what this reopening reopening would look like. There's no grand rebrand of Sears. If you look at the pictures in these in these uh, articles about it, it just looks like a depressing Sears. Um, and so, uh, but there yeah. is a welcome back sign at the entrance. There, you're right. I right. I, 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 I stand corrected, but like you would, it's, it's very interesting that the focus is uh, supposedly on fewer, bigger stores when one of the big issues with Sears has been its overall retailing model and it's overall like merchandising model. And, and the pictures were of empty shelves. So it's great to have a really huge footprint, but if you can't, fill that with things to sell, what's the point? Uh, and, you know, I, you know, it's been open for a few days, so who knows what's going to actually happen. But I don't know. It's just, it, it was, it's pretty wild to see these pictures and then remember, oh yeah, this existed. Especially when you think about, you know, Sears was the anchor, the anchor tenant for most malls back in the day. And now a lot of those stores are either completely closed or have transformed into something else. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, this one is 130,000 square feet, so that's, that's a lot of floor to cover. That is a lot of floor to cover. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. And so with that, that's our show for this week. Please write and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you're listening. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with retail industry leaders. Uh, th- that comes out on Thursday. Kale, do you have 
uh, preview for us. Who do you have on next week? Yes, next week I'm talking with the CEO of the home good brands, Koyuchi, which has been around for a really long time and has a pretty fascinating story. So check it out. Cool. Uh, Yeah, and so we will see you next week. Come back on Saturdays for the Modern Retail Rundown. And thank you for listening. 